All right, Kiss Army. You wanted the best. You got the best. Now close your eyes. You're about to be podcast. And welcome back to your podcast. I'm Ken Mills, one of your hosts here today. Today I'm No, I'm Ken Mills. No, you're Gary Schaller. Shit. And I'm joined by Gary Schaller. All right. How you doing? I'm Ken Mills. A, a man who needs no introduction cuz he's stealing my name. Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking to Kurt Gooch and Jeff Seuss, the authors of Kiss Alive Forever, The Complete Touring History. It's finally coming out in digital format. Kurt and Jeff, thank you for joining us today here on the podcast. Right now, we're going to discuss a little bit of Kiss current events, all with a K. (laughs) And guess who's got the number one album on Amazon UK this week, Gary? They said Pink they Floyd. No, Pink no. Floyd. <laughs> it's not. No, oh. it's Kiss with their album Kiss World, and it's a compilation album. And it's very strange that Kiss fans are upset about Kiss having an album out, which is kind of weird to me. It's it's Kiss. That's one of the things that they've been known for is putting albums out and. There are some fans who think it's just horrible that Kiss has this compilation album out. What do you think about it, Gary? But Ken, surely this is a bad thing, because it's all songs that we've heard so many times before, just rearranged in a new order. Right. And it's it's very bizarre. Uh, first off, the cover, uh, I, I'm not a big fan of the, the Kiss World font that's on it, but... It, it's the old dynasty thing, and I, those R's always freak me out. But having said that, it's it's a nice little package that you get, and it's got... There there was a version of it with Tommy and Eric on the top and Gene and Paul on the bottom, which was very surprising. But mm-hmm. this this compilation, it, it's got a lot of the usual suspects, but it's also got stuff that is truly aimed at the European market, and how many KISS compilations have Crazy Crazy Nights starting them off, right? Right. No, I like it. I think it's a cool compilation, and I'm glad they did it. And to be honest with you, it's every few months that I'll have a conversation with somebody where I, I talk to them about the podcast, or I mention that I'm a big KISS fan, and they, you know, invariably there's that response about like, oh, KISS, what are, you know, what do they do? They did rock and roll all night, this and that. And I think it's in KISS's best interest that every so often they release a compilation that sort of answers that question. Um, because these things, you know, it is a huge download on Amazon. Clearly people are interested in, or continue to be interested in what this band does, and these are the songs that made them famous. Mm-hmm. So I, I see no harm. Uh, it is. It doesn't erase uh, anything, and it doesn't take the place of anything. They didn't spend uh, months in the studio making this. Right. Yeah, and that, that's exactly the point there, Gary, that I don't understand. Leaves me scratching my head. Is Why would anybody be mad about this? I could see them being disinterested, in this, like, you know, shrug the shoulders, who cares? But, you know, from a fan's uh, perspective, you're right. It erases absolutely nothing. It doesn't prevent you from going and buying a new copy of of Alive or anything out of their, their catalog. Um, right. It prevents you from doing nothing. But people seem to find an opportunity, as if they're looking for one, mm-hmm. to be upset over, over nothing. Yeah. Um, 
it is it is strange and it's not unique to you know to the, the kiss fan base but um and, and people also i think if they you know take a deep breath and you know, recognize hey this is a business opportunity for the band too it represent every time they do this it represents a dozen new licensing opportunities mm-hmm. to get to get something in get five seconds of rock and roll all night in in the in some movie or something like that so why anybody's upset about it i'm not not sure i don't either kurt what do you think about it i couldn't agree more with all three of you universal this is just going to help promote the catalog and bring in fans to hopefully discover uh different titles yeah, compilations are very, very good for the catalog, and they promote catalog sales overall. So, yeah, that, I don't know why anybody would be upset about it. I'll tell you what, this the other thing is, too, that I have a great nostalgia. I'm sure you do as well, all of you, for um, some compilations. I, I think about the fact that like I used to take a lot of road trips up and down New York State. You know, you stop into a gas station, and there'd be this, like, bunch of cassettes, really cheap cassettes. <laughs> and I remember buying yeah. like, all kind of random stuff, like, at one time, like... I don't know, it was like really late and there was nothing else but like the greatest hits of uh, Dr. Hook. <laughs> yeah. Right? And you know, like that became your, your companion for like 40 minutes in, in the car, right? So maybe you never listened to it again. So what? You spent $5 and you got a, a Slurpee. Mm-hmm. And right. uh, I love that kind of thing. And, it, you know, it, for me, I'm, I, I'm actually taking a road trip later this summer and I'm actually looking forward to listening to this compilation because it'll be songs that songs I know in a different order, just something to enjoy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just talking about this now, I'm, I think I'm actually getting in the headspace to where I can understand a, a, a fringe element of the fan base that would be mad at this. Because I was, I was just thinking back when I was about, I guess it would have been about 13 or so. And I got it in my head that I was going to have one copy of absolutely everything Kiss released. <laughs> so like I had, I had to buy the best of the solo albums, even though I already had all four right. solo albums, so I wasn't getting new material. And I remember standing there, spending my seven ninety nine, which was like eight forty with tax or whatever, and thinking, "Man, this is a lot of my pocket money," and thinking, "God, I'm so mad. Would they stop releasing this stuff?" And I, and, and you have these little revelations, like, "Well, wait a second. Nobody's forcing you to buy this." <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so I maybe hate that's this voluntary behavior. Exactly. Exactly. So maybe the the, the fans who you know are steadfastly committed in their OCD-ness to having everything or just getting mad at the band for continuing to release stuff that they're compelled to buy. I don't know. Maybe that's it. At least Jeff was smart enough to question, and I was like one of the guys in the <laughs> I Love It Loud video. Jesus, I, I bought everything. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, you know, Kiss has had this extremely successful tour, and that's another thing that some people are upset that Kiss is currently on tour and succeeding. If I mean, you, you look at the pictures of Kiss standing in front of those audiences, it's just amazing. And again, if you look at the Amazon UK current chart, here's the numbers, folks. Are you ready? The number 100 album on Amazon UK is Destroyer. Kiss wow. Gold is at 75. Dynasty is at number 74. Alive is at 65. Hotter Than Hell at 62. The Elder at 61 greatest hits at 53 lick it up 37 the very best of kiss 32 creatures of the night at 31 at number 18 greatest kiss and at number one kiss world so the tour is really having a you know you you can actually see the cause and effect if you will yeah it's weird you skipped um 
Peter Chris at number two. <laughs> it's not there, Gary. I'm sorry. <laughs> Just kidding. We're, I love that record. I do we're, too. Contra- we're contractually obligated not to talk about that album, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's what the director said in rehearsal. Don't mention that album. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's great to see that Kiss is still flourishing in 2017. Like it, love it hate it whatever it's still happening i'm glad to see that they're still out there like it i my my identity is not based on how good kiss is doing this year but it's so cool that for a guy who was like in his teens back in the 70s told that kiss sucks and your opinion sucks and we've we've all survived and we're still here like it love it hate it whatever kiss they you just can't kill them so thank god yeah yeah and, and as, Gene, as Gene recently reminded us, it's not going to last forever. Right. It just can't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that's the, the interesting thing is that we're all old enough fans to have seen this entire business model flip on its head. Because mm-hmm. when KISS first started, you toured to support the album. And mm-hmm. that was your revenue stream, was, was your album sales. Right. And sure, you picked up a little money. Uh, with the tour, but not much. In fact, you know, as Bill O'Coin uh, would would readily attest, um, a lot of those tours uh, ran in the red. Yeah. And now that model, starting in about 1996, when all the promoter, all the local promoters started getting bought out by Clear Channel and SFX Group and everything, that model's been flipped on its end. You mm-hmm. make nothing with your albums, and you make everything with touring. And so you'll hear people say, oh, why are Kiss touring again? They don't even have a new album. It's like, well, because touring is their bread and butter (laughs) these days. And um, it's another thing that seems to upset people is the gentle reminder that that this is a business. And somehow that's, you know, something awful, you know. Uh, But it's a business for every band. Gene said that, you know, know, hey, anybody tells you that we're doing this for the musical integrity of mankind? No, it's the girls. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm just glad to see that Kiss is out there making it happen. Have either of you gentlemen, Jeff or Kurt, have you seen Gene on tour on this uh, Wizard World thing that he's doing? I have not. I actually have. Gene did an appearance in Brahman, Oklahoma, which mm. will be the future site of the first Rock and Brews Casino Resort, which is coming supposedly next year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Gene played under a water tower in Brahman, Oklahoma, for about maybe 300 people, and it was it was incredible. It was a lot of fun. I took my four-year-old son, and he absolutely loved it. So uh, he's a veteran of four Kiss concerts now, so he he just loves it. You nice. know, there's there's not many bands that when you say he's a veteran, you have to take into account that we call ourselves the Kiss Army. So. The tour, yes, sure. you know, the uh, tour of duty or the duty of the tour. Anyhow, Gene and his band, it's its just fantastic what they're able to do. And I've never seen Gene Simmons be so free. Would you agree with that, Kurt? Absolutely. Yeah, it was, he was having the time of his life up there. Um, they were doing songs virtually unrehearsed. Mm-hmm. And it, it was almost a challenge to see which the deep, how deep they could go with the deep cuts. I mean, it was really, really impressive for a diehard. Yeah, I love well, they uh, kicked out "Sweet and Dirty Love." Oh my God! Let's play, <laughs> let's play that sweet. right now. Let's let, let's let's play that right now. Here's Gene Simmons from Philadelphia at the Troc, "Sweet and Dirty Love" live. <laughs> Thank you. 
Oh, you did? The Confederate Bridge. I just wrote the song. I don't know. Did you hear that curtain, Jeff? No, I, I, that might be a little too deep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, uh, that, it just shows, you know, that the guys in the band are huge Kiss fans. They are us for all intents and purposes, and they they make sure that they know just about everything. And it's really neat how they do the arrangements. They add all the little bells and whistles in an audio way. And yeah. Matt Porter got to see them, and a special thanks to Nick Turner and Phil Souse and everybody in the Gene Simmons band, Ryan and everybody. Killer band. If you get a chance to see the Gene Simmons Band live, please do so. Please do so. Do not miss this. Gene play, even his bass playing, it seems to be fun, wild, and without abandon. It, it's like the Gene from Alive or the first three albums, wouldn't you say, Kurt? Absolutely. It really, really is. Uh, there's just this uh, free-for-all uh, with the set list and Gene's playing. It, it really is an amazing show, and I couldn't believe... Uh, how much I enjoyed it. I mean, I really, I was a little skeptical, but mm-hmm. yeah, it was, it blew, it blew me away. And the funny thing is, I mean, uh, literally it, people are at the end of the show, everybody's invited up on stage to, to play with Gene. And there were probably a hundred people up on stage, um, <laughs> singing rock and roll night with him. I thought the stage was going to collapse. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, but, uh, and he's even letting, uh, in Brahm and he, I don't know if this is the exception of the rule, but he let a, Probably, I think it was an eight-year-old girl yes. come up on stage and sing "Shout It Out Loud" with mm-hmm. And didn't he give her a couple hundred bucks? I that I don't know. <laughs> I mean, he handed her money because he's like, "If you work for it, you should you should get paid." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. He might have, but yeah, Gene, he. Uh, but yeah, Gene she was giving, very impressive. Gene's giving business lessons one on one. Now you go back to your union rep and make sure you ask for scale for this gig, right? <laughs> <laughs> Let me let me let me ask let me turn the switch roles here. I'll become the interviewer for okay. one question here. How how surprised were you three guys that Gene actually went out and did solo dates? I was flabbergasted. I've not seen them yet, but I was I was stunned that after all these years he finally went out and and did solo dates. Well, I know it's a dream come true for Gary. Gary, talk on that. I'm so pissed because he's playing nowhere where I can go. Yeah, I hope he plays uh, like Northern California, Pacific Northwest. I mean, I know he did Southern California. There was just no way to go. But I, I think it's amazing. I look, it, I, I'll probably go to my grave defending Gene musically, because I mm-hmm. think that you know, as I've said many times on the show and elsewhere, I think that the, the sort of narrative of Gene not giving a crap about music is is really um, not true. I mean, you know, I, I disagree with it is what I'm trying to say. And I, I, I love Gene's songwriting. I think he's a great singer. I think he's an underrated bass player. And I'm just pissed that it took him this long to kind of find his feet where he can go out um, with his own band and do his own thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's always the guy I watch when I watch a Kiss concert. And so um, I'm really looking forward to hopefully having the chance to see him do his solo thing. I, yeah, I really enjoyed Paul's Live to Win tour as well. Yeah. But, but this to me is like a dream come true. Absolutely. Yeah, I, think, I think Gene's got more dates coming up in November, so hopefully you'll get a chance. Yeah. Oh, good, good, good. Well, I think I think we got a glimpse into not only Gene's amazing repertoire, and let's give him credit where credit's due. Mm-hmm. He's actually got a spectacularly good memory for you know remembering little riffs and everything. But we got a, a glimpse at that with the '95 conventions. 
when people were calling out stuff that either had never been played live or hadn't been played live in 30 years or whatever it was, you know, hey, simple type, uh, wait a second, yep. I think I remember that. And it, he was actually very, very good at, um, that, you know, if somebody told me to go back and play a song off the band I had in Chicago in the mid-90s, I would give them this completely blank look like, what? <laughs> but... You know, people were calling stuff out at the at the conventions uh, for Paul and Gene, and Gene remembered it really, really well. And uh -huh. and I agree. I, I while I don't think Gene is you know Jaco Pistorius by any stretch of the imagination, he's he's a really fine bass player, very much in the Paul McCartney vein of a struggling guitar player who got uh -huh. relegated to bass. But if you listen to stuff like he does on Little Girl, aka Going Blind. He's a really adventurous, interesting bass player. I mean, he's right. he's got more in the in the bucket than people give him credit for. Absolutely. Totally. Kurt, did you ever think you'd see this? Gene Solo? Yeah. No, I, I truly did not. And I, I I was blown away when he announced the the dates, and especially when I watched the first uh, set list and saw, or when I watched the first show and saw the set list. It was just uh, uh, quite a revelation for me to to be seeing that after all this time. Yeah. It's also, you know, exactly what you'd want a Gene Solo tour to be. There was this period 10, 15 years ago where if he had done this, it would have been something terrible and cheesy, right? He would have done like a... Yeah. Gone out with the gangster image like he tried to with uh, Firestarter or whatever, you know. This is exactly what... There's a kind of like a, I dare I say, like a maturity about it. And that's perfect. It's really, really good. Tasteful. Fantastic. I've always thought, and let's see if you guys agree, I always thought KISS were their most interesting when they were just making music that they wanted to make and not trying to second-guess what was popular. So the first six albums are really KISS music, and then they got the taste of being popular and thought, oh, well, disco's popular, let's do this, or pop, or Pink Floyd were huge with The Wall, so let's do our version of The Wall. And uh, those are interesting albums, but I I've always said KISS, all of them, were at their best when they were just making whatever hell music they wanted to. And I think this tour, this little tour that Gene's doing, is him doing whatever the hell he wants. And it's yeah, it, and we all, as audience members, pick up on, on how natural that feels. I think it's working because I have yet to hear one bad thing, read one negative review, which is pretty yeah. incredible for the KISS world. So yes. usually somebody's going to complain about something. Uh, especially I, about Gene, right? Yeah, especially about yeah. Gene. I, I have yet to read one negative thing about it. Well, once again, we want to encourage you. I, I think it's straight across the panel. If you get a chance to go to one of these Gene Simmons shows, do not miss it. As a KISS fan, it's almost like everything you've ever wanted from Gene. Seriously. I, I cannot talk it up enough. He uh, was just fantastic. Very loose. The, the most dangerous version of watching you I've ever heard live. It, it, it's just go, 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 go. And I loved the fact uh, when I was watching him in Oklahoma, and I think that was the third show, um, I had no idea what was coming next in the set list. Mm -hmm. I know right. they, had a, they had a domino that night. Um, maybe watching you was at it that night, and um, I think one other one. And I, I had no idea what was coming next. I mean, it really blew me away. And isn't that fun? I mean, I always have the most fun at concerts when I go see some, you know, I love seeing Iron Maiden, but they sit, play the exact same set list every night. I like Bruce Springsteen less, but when I go see him, 
I have no freaking clue what is going to be in the set. And that's a lot of fun. It, it's so fresh, for lack of a better word. So now you guys got me all jacked to go see this Gene Simmons tour, and I have no idea <laughs> where it's playing. <laughs> you, you, you absolutely have to, seriously. Jeremy and Ryan and Phil and uh, the, the other Mr. Simmons, the drummer, just amazing. Just do not miss it. Yeah. All right, enough kissing Gene's ass. Actually, okay. enough kissing Gene's asshole. See what I did there? Oh, wow, that's clever. Hi, everybody. I'm Gene Simmons, and you're not. You're listening to Podkiss. This clip is from when we did the Psycho Circus album, Roundtable. Andrew Scambatti did not seem to like I Finally Found My Way to You all that much, so I decided to razz him a little bit. And then after this, it's Matt and I doing some fake laughter. It's just us being goofy. lining them up and we're counting them down. I'm Casey Case. Today we have a long distance dedication from little Andrew Scambetti out there. His favorite band is Kiss. Kiss has finally released their first studio album with original members since the reunion. Andrew asked that we play I Finally Found My Way to You because he says it's a cool song like Beth Kiss's big hit back in the 70s. Casey, do you think you could play it just for me? Signed, Kiss's number one fan. All right, Andrew, just for you. Off of Psycho Circus, I finally found my way to you. Uh, it's like a car starting. <laughs> Check out the podcast for even more kiss craziness and us being goofballs. Find us on iTunes or www.podkiss.com. Ten years, baby. Yeah. Kiss Alive Forever, The Complete Touring History, by Kurt Gooch and Jeff Seuss. In 2002, one of the greatest books about Kiss was released, Kiss Alive Forever, The Complete Touring History. At nearly 300 pages in length, with over 175 color photos from all eras of history, this book, which took seven years for the authors Kurt Gooch and Jeff Seuss to create, is becoming an e-book for the very first time ever. Currently available in digital form at the Apple iBook Store. Soon to come to Kindle. Kiss Alive Forever needs to be on your digital bookshelf. I want to segue for a second. Mm-hmm. Okay. I want to. I want to geek out for a second. Not that we haven't been doing that, but I want to personally geek out. I'm so psyched to be having just a a, a fan conversation with the guys who wrote Kiss Alive Forever. Absolutely, it's one of the greatest Kiss books that's ever been written. Ever. And uh, guys, seriously, we love this book. The book, of course, we're talking about Kiss Alive Forever, the complete touring history. And chances are, if you're a Kiss fan, you have it. But, I mean, it, ha, Gary, have, have you checked the prices of Kiss Alive Forever, the complete touring history lately? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right now, yeah. I'm on Amazon. 
you can get 13 of them used for 59.60 and they're not in great quality but you can get new ones there's two new ones for $243.73 that's oddly specific $243.73 it's like I've only got 72 I'm sorry that's all we'll take but the two authors are here and I, gentlemen just because we've been prattling on for about 20 minutes I'd like you to reintroduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you Jeff you start first are you done with all the accolades? I mean, that was, by my watch, only like 63.73 seconds worth of kissing my ass. Do you want to keep going? <laughs> and, and, and 73 cents. And 73 exactly. cents, yeah. But I'm bummed. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm Jeff Seuss, um, my partner here, uh, uh, partner in crime on, on many endeavors. Kurt Gooch is, is here, too. What do you want to know, guys? First off, we, we, we need to announce that the book is coming out in digital format. So you're yes. not going to have to pay $59 for a ratty, dog-eared copy or one that's yes. falling apart. You don't have to pay $243 and the oddly specific 73 cents. Mm -hmm. You're going to be able to get it at a reasonable price. All that information at your fingertips, and it's going to be searchable, isn't it? It's absolutely searchable, and that's probably the main selling component, especially if you already own it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, about a year ago, I found a case of Kiss Alive Forever, like a, a sealed case that I had never opened. Mm -hmm. And I, I put them out, and I put them up for 100 bucks a pop, and they sold literally within 72 hours. I'd sold the entire case. Mm -hmm. And I realized that the book had been out of print for eight years already. And in that time, a whole other generation had come up, and I would see people all the time talking about how they didn't have the book or had never seen the book or had heard about the book. And Jeff and I talked, and we started realizing, you know, there's a market out there for this. There's somebody that's going to want to have a digital version. So, yeah, we started working on this in January, and we naively thought, well, this will take a week. And uh, about two weeks into it, we realized it was going to take several months to get this thing done right. Sure enough, you know, the book comes out Monday, June 5th. Yeah, we're, we're super excited that this is finally coming out and finally going to see the light of day so that now everybody can have it and, it, and it's affordable for everyone. Mm -hmm. Now, just in case we have people who are listening who don't already have a copy of, because my copy of Kiss Alive Forever is beat to hell. Like, I, I just, I've read the sh shit out of that. And uh, it's just, it, I, I mean, I love that book. Um, but just in case we have people who are listening to podcasts and don't know what this book is, right? This is the ultimate book about Kiss's touring history. I mean, it goes, to me, it goes on the shelf with all the great books that Julian Gill has written. You know, all the, like, all the very best books I think about Kiss. This is, there's incredible photographs in it. There's incredible stories about recordings that, We've never heard super rare things, interesting uh, anecdotes. And which of you gentlemen gets credit for referring to Paul's onstage raps as poet laureate material? I think that, that was, was that me. That would be Jeff. Yeah, that was Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> Did I say that? Yeah, that's one of my favorite quotes. I, I, yeah, okay. Yeah, that sounds like something I would have said. It's kind of strange, you know, when Kurt found that box of books and ended up selling them, 
that book, Kiss Left Forever, was a little bit out of sight, out of mind for us because it had been so many years since we published it and we'd gone on and done other things, including working heavily with Lydia Chris on her book and then with Larry Harris on the, the Casablanca book and many other things that it, it, it was kind of in the rearview mirror. It, it was really a bucket of ice water over us like, wait, people are paying how much for this? You know, maybe there's still an audience out there. And yeah, it's actually been 15 years since that was first published and probably, yeah, somewhere eight, nine years since it's been uh, officially out of print. So yeah, uh, we wanted to kind of aim the digital version at two groups of people. One, the people that had not had a chance to own the, the original book. And two, the people such as yourselves who did, now you've got an opportunity to, you know, have it in your back pocket and your phone all the time and it's all digitally searchable and, and everything because yeah the, the comment that the book is falling apart is a very very common one and in billboard the our publisher and their in their defense it wasn't that they built a shoddy book it's that all of us we had zero idea how frequently and how over a, such a protracted period of time that people would be using it as a reference guide Including um, ourselves, by the way. We, yeah. we use it almost every day still. That's oh, true. Particularly when we started recording podcasts. It's one of the things that I had next to the computer every single time we recorded. Um, and I say particularly when we started, because I think it, when we first started doing podcasts, we had fewer interviews and we, had, we were playing more live clips. And it was just, a, I mean, it is an essential companion. I'm almost hesitant to ask, but is there any chance we'll see a volume two? Yes, there is. And we should clarify this, by the way. The version that is coming out on June 5th here is essentially the original text. We went in and we fixed dozens, if not hundreds, of tiny little typos, literal typos, you know, word that's misspelled, a comma that's misplaced. We fixed three or four factual things in it, but it's more or less the original, original book. Mm. A full-on volume two has always been in in our minds since the day the original one was published. Fully updated, not only adding additional material since the first volume was published uh, up to the present, but also filling in a lot of facts and figures that we have found with the early text since that was that was published, which is huge. Because I've, I've always told anybody that has asked that Kiss Alive Forever was a lot like digging up a dinosaur. That you never get a complete skeleton. It's all very, very painstaking work. A lot of detective work. A lot of, uh, you know, guesswork and hypothesis. And you're lucky if you get 50% of a skeleton, the rest of which you got to fill in. And um, it was a very rewarding process. But, of course, as with any scientific endeavor, the further you go on, the more stuff you be, you, more stuff you learn. So at some point, yes, uh, in the not terribly distant future, we'll get we'll get a fully updated version of it. But that's probably a year or two away at the at the very least. And the other thing that we should point out, guys, is that you know back when we started doing this, it was 1996. The internet was still in its infancy. We had to physically travel around the country going to each of these libraries in the towns where Kiss had played to look up stuff because the newspapers were not archived online in any way, shape, or form. So it took seven years and $75,000 to put Volume 1 together. Nowadays, it'll be a lot more streamlined because a lot of the newspapers are online and we don't have to travel anymore. 
Um, But we even spent uh, two whole weeks at the Library of Congress looking through their archives and digging up stuff. I mean, oh my God. Yeah, we really left no stone unturned as far as the data uh, went and making sure we had every show. And to give you guys an idea of how good a job we did, um, since the book was published 15 years ago, we still do not have one single show that has popped up that was not in the book. So we're pretty certain we got all of them. We had some canceled shows pop up, but we have not had one single show that took place that was supposed to be in the book that uh, didn't, with one exception, which is that we already knew, and Amarillo Kiss played on the Creatures of the Night Tour, and somehow we forgot to include it in the book. We had the information. We just somehow forgot to put it in the book. So Mm -hmm. that is included in the new version. Nice. But other than, other than that, there wasn't any more. Yeah, the only thing that's going to pop up at this point is a 74 show. We, we do have a couple of those, and all it was was it turned out we figured out that a night where they played one show, they actually played two. Mm. All of them were in 74. I think there may be two or three of them. But Kurt's right, yeah, and we're pretty stunned that, especially 1974, which was just unbelievably chaotic. I would say... It, the amount of time we spent trying to fill in 1974 is about as much as we spent on 1975 through 2002. It was that difficult uh, to put together because it was literally changing. I mean, we even had itineraries, and the itineraries would be valid for like three days, and then something would be canceled, and then something would get shifted, and it was just amazing. But it was it, it was very good that stuff was not digitized back then because the amount of stuff that Kurt and I found because we had to go slowly through these physical newspapers or microfilm at least was incredible that we would have missed if we were just doing digital searches. Uh Um, Kurt, can you think of anything that, that you caught specifically because you had to go slowly through newspaper archives or? Well, the thing that stands out to me is there's a magazine, a trade magazine, a weekly trade magazine for the touring industry called Performance. It's not around anymore, but it was still around at the time. And yes. they were nice enough to let us – their offices were out of Fort Worth and I'm close by. So right. I literally went down to their offices, went through their archives, stood in their offices while they are working and photocopied every issue that they had on file from 74 and 75 and 76 just to take – not Kiss's itineraries, but the other band's itineraries to see if they matched up and had Kiss on any dates. I mean, that was the kind of stuff we went through, uh-huh. trying yeah. to find out, you know, what what Kiss shows were on because Kiss were so so unknown in early '74, such a non-entity that right. oftentimes they would not be included on the bills. And we found um, the first show of the Kiss tour. Jeff, help me out. Is it Painter's Mill or is it uh, the other no, one? No, Valley, Valley Forge. Valley Forge. Yeah, we found because it was on a Redbone itinerary. Right. And we found out kind of uh, after the fact that Kiss had played this gig. And, and it, wasn't on, it wasn't on any Kiss itinerary and it wasn't anywhere archived. Yeah, we, 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 we figured that they probably had played it because they played with Redbone a night or two later. And then yeah, we asked Moose and JR, do you guys remember playing this Valley Forge music fair? Like, oh, my God, yeah, that thing in the round where we set the balcony on fire. And, yeah, so they they were able to, you know, confirm confirm stuff like that. But it was it was really 
you know, astonishing the stuff we would come up with. Uh, you know, Kiss played uh, the Electric Ballroom in Atlanta a lot in 1974, a very famous venue. And I was going through this, this old magazine called The Great Speckled Bird that was an Atlanta area entertainment magazine. Mm-hmm. And I saw the three shows in September of 74. So, you know, I photocopied and said, wow, this is cool. And I noticed that the night after Kiss was playing there, which had been September 21st, that a band called Nectar that I was really into, they're sort of a, you know, Pink Floyd kind of art rock band. I thought, oh man, yeah, yeah, they were playing the night after Kiss. God, how cool would that have been just to stick around an extra night and see Nectar after the Kiss thing? And then I noticed all of a sudden there's this blurb that says, oh, Nectar had to cancel their U.S. tour due to visa (laughs) problems. And I thought... Well, I wonder if Alex Cooley asked Kiss to stay an extra night. And so I'm combing through these mag- th- this magazine, and sure enough, on a hunch, in tiny little print, I noticed Kiss 18th through the 21st now. It was oh. never advertised. It was nothing. And it was literally blindly on, on a hunch. And we, we ran into stuff like that all the time. I know Kurt found a, a show... Literally because he was reading an article about, I think, the Capitol Theater in in New Jersey. And he's reading it, and then there's a list of all the bands that, that played there, and Kiss was there. And we're like, wait a second, we don't have a Kiss date. And because of that article that he just happened to be, you know, kind of accidentally reading just for his own amusement, there's another Kiss show. And 74 was like that. I, I can give you one story that always seems to really impress people about the ridiculous OCD level of research that we did. And it was a May 3rd, 1974 show in St. Louis at the Ambassador Theater, Ambassador Theater, which is now very famous for being the show where J.R. Smalling locked Argent's road manager into <laughs> an anvil road case. Yeah. I'm from St. Louis. So I wanted to get every bit of information about every St. Louis show that there was. I wanted to make sure I had all the dates right, all the other other bands on the bill, headliners, opening acts, attendance figures, everything. Well, this was one of the first shows they played there, right after the the Kite Fest, about five, six weeks after the Kite Fest. I could find very little information on the show other than the the date and the venue. Well, it was at this place called the Ambassador Theater, which is an old vaudeville theater built in the 1920s, that had fallen into disuse. It's been destroyed since then, but at the time is still in existence. So I called around and found somebody that used to work for the promoter and the promoter was dead. Asked them for information. No, they don't have it, but you might want to try so-and-so at, it's like Bank of America had just bought the building that the Ambassador Theater was in. They weren't doing anything with it. They were going to tear it down and build up whatever. And so I called over to the bank and called around and say, hey, is there anybody there that has handled the purchase of the Ambassador Theater? And I get passed around and passed around, and finally I get to somebody that's basically an attorney. I explain to him what I'm doing, and it's like, whatever, and he hands me off to a paralegal. And lucky me, the paralegal happens to be a KISS fan who's in you know his early 20s, and I explain ah. what I'm doing. And he's like, wow, that's really cool. And I said, how... Is there any way we can find that information in the paperwork that you guys got when you bought the property? He says, I don't know. He calls me back the next day and says, I found the paperwork for the Ambassador Theater. He hadn't found the specific one. But um, I'm going to go over this weekend and look at it. And so that weekend, he went over there and went through box upon box upon box of stuff until he found 
something. It was the box office receipt from the night Kiss played there. And so we had the amount of money that the, the, the box office had put onto a bank deposit slip that night from that show. Uh-huh. And we knew how much the tickets were for the show so we could do the division and figure out what the attendance was for the show. And after all that work, Kurt and I are like, man, there's just too many other things that could have been in that box office receipt. That's not really accurate. We can't do it. <laughs> so we went through all, well, I went through all that work just to get one attendance figure that we ended up not using anyway. And when you start multiplying that times 2,000 shows, you'll start to get an idea of kind of the ridiculous level of research that we, that we put into you know, put into that book. Yeah, at that time, a lot of the venues that Kiss had played in the 70s were still open and still functional. Uh-huh. I can remember right. calling the general manager of the summit in Houston, and he was literally giving me, reading off, they had a, a show log, and he was reading off the attendance and the number of comps for the 77 and 76 and 79 shows at the summit. Um, and if you try to call that now, you would get Joel Olstein, uh, you know, the, the <laughs> right. preacher guy up there, because the summit's yeah. been turned into a church. Oh well, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so we were just so lucky that we started this in '96, just before the big promoter buyouts in '98. Yeah, and that's that's the other thing, Kurt, is that um, the promoters that promoted Kiss in the '70s were still around. So Jules Belkin and who else? Sunshine Promotions and Jam Promotions, Contemporary, all of these promoters had not sold to SFX Group, so you could call them up. I remember calling up Sunshine Promotions, telling them what they are going to do. Within uh, The next day, via FedEx, on their dime, uh, Brandon Lucas, the owner's son, had printed off the entire sheet of Kiss gigs going all the way back to June of 1974 and sent it to us. And everybody, with one exception, was incredibly helpful. And one of our favorite stories to tell, you guys know who Steve Glantz is, right? The Detroit promoter? Yeah. Right. Well, we we wanted to find Steve Glantz because he's probably the most important KISS promoter of them all because he really got them started in Detroit. Mm -hmm. Well, we can't find him. And I'm looking online. And Kurt, this is so long ago, Kurt does not have a computer at that point. I'm, I'm doing all the computer work. Kurt's doing all the road work. And so I'm scouring the internet, looking for, okay, I think I found Steve Glantz. There were like three of them. We called the first team. It's clearly not him. We called a guy in Florida, and Kurt, Kurt's like, yeah, we're looking for Steve Glantz, who's a Detroit promoter. And the guy's like, no, no, I'm sorry, that's not me, that's not me. We hang up. Kurt's on the line. He's like, fuck that. That was him. That was him. Call him back. Call him back now. I'm like, Kurt, he just said he wasn't him. He's like, trust me. So I call him back. The guy answers. And Kurt starts talking like he's in mid-conversation. He's like, that must have been so, you know, so incredible. So there you are. You've got, you've sold 12,031 tickets to this, you know, to to Cobo Hall. You're packed to the rafters. It's this big, huge concert. God, you're a young guy. That just must have been such an incredible part of your life. And there's this long, long silence (laughs) on, on the other end. And all of a sudden, this guy goes, yeah, okay, that, that's me. But my my wife doesn't even know about that part of my life. And, <laughs> seriously. And so he he stayed on the phone for, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes with us. He actually didn't remember or claimed he didn't remember that much stuff. I mean, he was a nice guy about it. But it, it, it's one of my favorite stories because Kurt was so convinced, that guy's lying. That's him. That's him. That's him. And he was absolutely right. And he had the... 
he had the technique to to pull it off. Just start talking, and eventually he'll cave, and he did. So it, it was a lot of that type of teamwork that opened up a lot of a lot of doors for us. That's yeah. awesome. And I can't say enough about all the road crew and the roadies. They once we oh, got God. one guy, he would turn oh. us on to five other guys. We talked to those five guys, and they'd give us five other guys. Um, and yeah, yeah the, the bread and butter of Kiss Alive Forever has has never really been the data. It's always been the quotes from the people that were there. It and was. Um, we we were able to get so many people that had never been interviewed that had, nobody knew who they were until it was first published in Kiss Life Forever. Like, um, tell, tell them who Paul Sub was, because no, at, at that point in time, you guys will remember this, there were three Kiss books in existence before Chris Lentz came out. It was the John Swenson and Robert Duncan throwaway paperbacks from the, the late 70s, and the Peggy Tamarkin book from 1980, which is essentially a 100-page press kit. There was nothing that had been had put any work into it until Chris Lent did his, his his bio, and he was just recounting his own memories. He wasn't going out and interviewing people. So the only people that had ever been interviewed were, I don't know, Bill O'Coin and Sean Delaney. And once we started making these phone calls, I remember calling J.R. Smalling, and literally the conversation was, are you the guy that's the beginning of Alive? And he's like, yeah, yeah, that was me. I talked to him. The very first time I talked to him, I talked to him for four hours straight. He was so Jeez. nice. Awesome. And that went, and that went. Well, yeah. Here's here's my buddy Rick Monroe. I haven't talked to him in years. Talk to him. Talk to Rick Monroe. I mean, within a period of six months, I'm literally sitting in Jay Barth's house in Ann Arbor, Michigan, with he and his wife, Hot Pam and Hot Sam. And now these people I've known for 20 years. They were unbelievably nice. But the level of people that we were able to get, and it, this is another great find of Kurtz, is that. Kurt found the guy that owned and started Coventry. We had no clue oh who it God. was. And, Kurt, you can pick up the story story from here. Yeah, his name is Paul Sub. I think he was in his 80s when I talked to him then. Probably, uh, yeah. And uh, he had a razor-sharp memory. And, yeah, yeah he, he was impressed because, you know, originally we didn't know how, how many times Kiss had played at Coventry. And so I went through the Village Voice every week photocopying the ads right. and then right. built up a collection of ads. And Paula said, hey, I, can you send me those? So I sent those to him first so he'd be able to look at them and really have you know, some firsthand knowledge. And he looked through all those and then we interviewed him. And he, 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 just, he, he remembered that with Kiss, like nobody was there. And that they had basically, they were the only band that would come to him and try to get like an extra $25 so that they could get a hotel room to put on the makeup. So they interestingly, you, you would think that they would just get ready at their houses and come to the show. But I guess they actually had a hotel room near the venue and would get ready at the hotel and then come over to the venue. Well, this was that whole thing of like wanting to uh, um, arrive like in style. Right, right. Yeah. That not only that, the other thing that he pointed out to us that uh, you know, was not known until uh, Kiss Life Forever was first published, but the December '73 gigs that Kiss did, they were opening for a more popular band at the time called ISIS, an all-female band that actually had a record contract and had a, actually had an album out. So right. Kiss were the opening act for ISIS, but of course, when you read history or hear the official story, they don't bother to mention that fact. Yeah, and that, that was one thing that Kurt and I kind of arrived at a decision. 
mutually is that when we were going to research this book, and it didn't start out as a book. This was just sort of a project that I had taken up myself and Kurt had been working on separately. And we got introduced by an online friend uh, of both of ours. What we decided was that if we're going to research this, we have to basically try to pretend that we don't know anything, that nothing the band has said is accurate, that nothing anybody has said is accurate, because we didn't, one, we didn't want to steal anybody else's work. We didn't want to rely on anybody else's uh, work to be accurate. And we didn't want to take the band at face value either. Because, you know, they were marketing themselves. When you're marketing themselves, you have a vested interest in polishing the truth. And that's well, that's the, uh, that's the genius of, I think the book starts, if I'm remembering correctly, with believe everything, believe nothing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Since we're talking about Kiss Alive Forever, the complete right. touring history, Jeff, I'm going to ask you, do you sure. have one Kiss Live track? And let us know your favorite Kiss Live track. Yeah, I, I would say, for me, I think the band was at its height just in terms of its energy, in terms of its performance, You mean meaning you know how clean the performance was, how, mm-hmm. how polished it was, probably around the time that Alive was recorded. And mm-hmm. just because it's one that's very easy for people to reference, I don't know if I've ever seen the band tighter and hungrier than when they did Deuce on the Midnight Special that I remember just being just so, it's such a hot performance, man. It's just really, really good. And more than anything else that pops to mind, probably probably that um, would be a, a high point for me. Well, here's Kiss doing Deuce from the Midnight Special.
Hi, this is Ace Frehley, and you're listening to podcast. I also want to point. I mean, first of all, you, let me let me just say this. You know, you're 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 talking about all the tremendous hard work that went into this book, and uh, you know, I I really just want to say thank you because this book is so tremendous. I mean, it's such a great book, and you guys worked so hard on it. And I don't know how often people. I hope people thank you for this book uh, as often as I would like them to because it is such a remarkable book. I mean, there's no no other book has been written like this about this band. Um, I also oh, really appreciate it because, yeah, I mean, really, I, I, I appreciate thank it too you. because, oh, sure, look, uh, it's a band that we take seriously, and this book takes Kiss seriously. Like you mentioned the, uh, you know, the two paperback kind of, um, you know, schlocky yeah. books that came out, which mm-hmm. I think are just genius. I love, you know, Kiss Headliner and right. all of that. I mean, it's super fun. It's of its day. Yeah, I mean, it's cute, but it's not. It's not meant to be a serious biographical work. No, right. it's not. I mean, in this, and this, and one of the things I loved about this book, and and why I was just in trouble when this came out, like I got nothing done for days when this came out because <laughs> you know, um, I, I you know, I was I, I was on the toilet for a week. No, because uh, you know, <laughs> when this book just came reading. out, it was like, ah, oh, these people take this band really uh, in a good way, seriously, not too seriously, right. you know, but right. like. The right kind of seriously. There's a band that's been touring for ages and making lots of records. Clearly, there's a lot to talk about. And I want to just read one thing, a, a quote from the book here, okay? Because because sure. we're talking about, you know, the the minutia of, and and good, you know, good minutia about the dates they played, wh- what gigs were canceled and added. But one of the things that I love about this book is it also goes, it, you know, it it isn't just lists. It's not a book of lists. It's a book that also has stories that are relevant yeah. if you care if you care about kiss right and yes. so you have this entry here where it was may 31st 1975 ace wrote in a may 31st letter quote i'm staying on the queen mary it's really nice everything is done in art deco i'm skipping ahead a little bit last night neil had a big party for us neil showed the new monty python movie i couldn't stop laughing <laughs> And then this part that just chokes me up to this day. Tonight, the guy from Gibson is coming and giving us more guitars. I own seven guitars now. Not bad for a poor kid from the Bronx. Uh, and I just... Yeah. Here's, you know, here's May of 1975. Kiss Alive hasn't come out yet. And right? this is the kind of stuff that you want to read. You want to read what it was like for this poor kid from the Bronx to be on the rise to start him. That's yeah. one of the things that Kurt and I were really impressed with that, that we learned that we didn't know before we undertook this. I mean, we knew KISS was kind of a skyrocket to success, great American dream story. But what was so fulfilling to us about, you know, the the real thing without the hype was the absolutely stupendous amount of work that went into it early on. And I, I made a point to the, the guys when they were writing their, their roadie book. And I, Kurt and I both tried to make this point just when we were writing Kiss Alive Forever, and it's the big part of the reason why we chose to dedicate it to the crew, that it's astonishing that that team, meaning the, the, the four band members and the five or six road crew, made it through 1974 alive. <laughs> it's even more astonishing to think that they made it through 1974 with a clear head of steam, because when you start doing the math of the equation, 
where you've got four guys in the band who have never toured before, and they're not virtuoso musicians. You've got a record company that's brand new, headed by the youngest record company president in the, the country. It is a record company that's got no money. So they've got to go to Warner Brothers to get money, and Warner Brothers hates KISS, hates them so much to the point they're not even manufacturing. They're telling their record pressing plant, do not press KISS's stuff. Put it way down at the bottom of the list right by yanking crabgrass in your list of things to do. <laughs> then KISS has got a manager that has never managed a band before who's only like 29 years old himself. They've got a road crew that is all the same age as they are. They're only 20, you know, 22 years old. This is not a recipe for success. And then you've got to go out and get tour dates with these bands who want nothing to do with them after three nights mm -hmm. because Kiss is insisting on putting on this big show and they're blowing people off the stage. And so poor Larry Harris is, what does he have to do? Is, well, I can get you guys gigs with radio stations because the radio stations love me. Okay, great. So Kiss is playing 100,000 people in St. Louis to a Casey event, and then they've got to go immediately to Cleveland for another radio event the next night. And then, and there, there's one section in 1974 where they go from St. Louis one night on May 3rd to Atlanta on May 4th, which is a hell of a long drive. The very next night, they get there. Ten minutes too late, and Blue Oyster Cult says, sorry, you guys don't have time to set up. You're, you're canceled. They turned around and went from Atlanta to Canada for the next gig. Yes, Canada. They drove all the way up there. They get there, and JR says, we can't do our show in this club, so we're not going to do it. Then they've got to drive all the way around through Michigan, all the way over to Pennsylvania for a gig at some college, and again, they can't play the gig because the promoter can't give them a forklift and dry ice and Kiss can't do their show. And in that space of six days, they ended up playing one show and driving like 2,000 miles in a station wagon and the, you know, the Scooby-Doo mystery machine van. And that's what 1974 was. And when you start thinking about having to do that, where you've got no ability to check in with Bill LaCoin except when you pull over and use a, a, a toll booth or a, a toll phone or something. Imagine doing that for 365 days for basically no money. With no cell and, phones. Yeah, exactly. With, with, with no cell phones and no ability to you know advance gigs. And they played, what, 150 shows that year and there were 75 additional shows that got canceled? 75 times they get canceled shows and it's well, it just talks about the resilience of uh yes of, of these of these men right you know however many you are the four or five six seven eight, the ten people or whatever you know how, yeah. how resilient they were emotionally psychologically resilient people to be able to go through this much um like the wear and tear and rejection and uh and dismissal exactly. i mean just so much uh that would i think in most people cause like depression and anxiety well arguably did for some of them but i'm sure but like you know, just uh, how, how, you know, every dart makes a dent, and uh, they must have just been torn to shit after this. It really was the Wild West back then. I mean, it, it's, it's unbelievable. The roadies called it the Star of David tour because it was like the booking agents were just throwing the, a dart at a map and put it, putting a show on. It's, it's unbelievable they survived it. And if you guys have ever gone to even just two concerts in two nights, it's exhausting. <laughs> yeah, it's really tiring. You come home and you need a day to recuperate almost as an audience member. Yeah. So right. think about being in the show and having the pressure of putting on the show 
and getting that right night after night and then going and doing all this traveling, uh, you know, in the middle of no cell phones and no faxes. Yeah, in a station wagon with six guys. I mean, it is it is unbelievable that all of this works. And you, I want to just go back for a second because you mentioned numbers and math several yeah. times. And I want to point out one of the other really great things about this book for people who don't have it or are thinking about buying it is, you know, some of the appendices that are in the back where you get these. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. just like this was unnecessary information to publish. Like the book alone would have been great without this stuff. But then you, yeah. you did us the favor of like putting together these lists of like, gee, how many times was Cold Gin performed? How many times was uh, Get All You Can Take performed, you know? Or how many times did they play Ottawa or uh, or what have you? How, how many times did Gene set himself on fire? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, I love that stuff. But I mean, as a Kiss fan, how could you not want a book like this? Well, you know what? In retrospect, you know what that was? That appendix was basically clickbait before clickbait existed. <laughs> it's, exact, it's exactly what it is. I mean, because you see it all over the place. Uh, online, you know the seven most the seven most deadly penguin accidents, or the you know <laughs> any any list any list of anything it sucks people in. And I think I, I've told people this before. I know Kurt has too. We wrote this for ourselves. We couldn't have second guessed what other people wanted. We literally wrote to put something on the shelf that we would like to pick up ten years from now and fifteen years from now, and hoped that if we succeeded in that, that there would be other people that liked it, uh, liked it too. And thank you for your compliments. And to answer your question from before, in the entire 15 years since it's been published, there's only been one negative comment made about Kiss Alive Forever, and that was made by somebody who had an axe to grind with us because we didn't buy his photos for the book. <laughs> oh, wow. And that, that's that's literally it. All the other all the other negative comments are sort of backhanded compliments. Like, oh, I wish there would have been more pictures. And I was like, well, yeah. That means okay. you like the pictures. Yeah, or the one that people say, oh, my binding's falling apart. And it's like, and I feel bad for those people, literally. But we had no clue that people would pick it. Because usually with most books, if you think about a book you buy, you buy it, you read it once. Even if it's a reference type thing, maybe you go back to it occasionally. People keep telling us, oh, like you just did. I open this up every day. It's like I had no idea people were going to do with it. Do that with right. this book. Neither did I. I mean, the staying power of the book is really incredible. Um, I, everybody tells us that's the easily the the number one book they use the most. We really did design the book so that if you went into a bookstore and you picked that thing up, if you were a Kiss fan, it would be virtually impossible to put that thing down and not buy it. Yeah. Um, every photo that went into the book, we tried to put something unique or something rare all the way down to like Ace playing a rare guitar on Dynasty to there was one Love Gun show where during his solo, Ace went up on uh, the platforms. Platforms. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we, we, we took a somebody had a shot of that. And so we put that in the book just because it was such a unique thing. All right, all right, I, right, I got to ask, I got to ask, have you, have we yet seen photos? You, you know what I'm going to ask, right? Yes. I have, I have a feeling we do. Yes. <laughs> Bismarck, North Dakota, is that, yeah, is that yeah. what's coming next? Of course, of course. Of course. No, yeah. we, we not have not, yet. we have not seen that. And it's funny that neither Kurt nor I, nor any of the other certainly intelligent KISS fans out there have ever really put their shoulder into finding those photos because it, 
it can be done. And really all you have to do, anybody that wants to do it, is you go find the Bismarck, North Dakota newspapers. You make a phone call. You find out who the photographers were back then. You say, hey, did you take photos of this show? Somebody took photos of that show. It was the opening night of the tour. Somebody took photos. Now, they might have been thrown out. That's mm-hmm. possible. But somebody took photos of that show. And now somebody's got to go do the work. Right. Well, one, one all, right thing, all right, Bismarck, kiss army. Yeah, yeah right. If, if there's anybody out there from Bismarck, please find a way to get in touch with us through our Facebook page or something, It's which is Kiss Alive Forever, the book. Um, we definitely need to see photos from that opening night of the tour. Uh, and in case anybody wonders why, Kiss's wardrobe lady, uh, a woman by the name of Pixie Esmond, alleged yes. in Kiss Alive Forever that uh, Kiss wore their love gun outfits or versions thereof their love gun outfits for the first show because the creatures' outfits were stuck in, I believe, Denver in a stow store. Yes. Um, and to this day, not one picture has ever surfaced from that show to prove her wrong. And we do know that she was telling the truth about the snowstorm. Kiss rehearsed creatures in Los Colinas outside of Dallas. And then they sent all their stuff on a plane that connected through Denver in Stapleton Airport. And I've talked to people who actually were flying with the gear about being snowed in. I forget the guy's name. His name's Jeff. I remember that. It was a lighting director, the LD for the tour, remembered very clearly that they were stuck in Stapleton there for a bit and had to get all of the stuff off of the planes and put onto trucks. And that's why it, it took an extra day to get up there and they canceled Rapid City or Sioux Falls or whatever the first show was and opened up in uh, Bismarck. So that portion of, of Pixie's story is 100% accurate. And Kurt and I have always, yeah, I've always kind of believed that when pictures surface, you're not going to see Vinny and Ace's exact love gun outfit. You're probably going to see a mismatch of, you know, okay, I'm going to take the boots from this costume. Okay, right, give me... Right. Which is kind of a little bit what, like what Gene and Paul were sort of doing with the creature's outfit anyway. Right. It was a little a little bit new, a little bit, okay, mm-hmm. here's a little bit of Destroyer here, a little bit. I think that's probably what we'll see. But Yeah, no, I think people, people, wanting, people expecting like uh, the silver spacesuit, the yeah. silver I don't. Yeah, I, I, I have the same thought. I don't think they're going to see that. Since we're talking about Kiss Alive Forever, the complete touring years, and do you have a favorite Kiss track that you've always loved to hear performed live? I do. Something about Let Me Go Rock and Roll always gets me. I don't know why, but there's just something about that. So I would say Let Me Go Rock and Roll from Largo 75. That was an interesting night because Kiss have what to this day is still the attendance record with 23,000 people in the Capitol Center in Largo, Maryland. And uh, they, they just owned the world that night. They were on fire. They were coming up. They were hot. They were hungry. Just hearing the Capitol Center show with Let Me Go Rock and Roll, I think, uh, I think that was a magical moment in time. Excellent. Well, here's Kiss from the Cap Center, Largo, Maryland. Let Me Go Rock and Roll. Rhythm section. 
I have one more question, and I, I again really appreciate one one other question that I'll be I'll be mad at myself if I don't ask. Right. So since this book came out, a yeah. lot of really amazing audio has uh, surfaced, right, or leaked, or been leaked, or whatever it is. Um, yes. And uh, you know, in particular, of course, I remember reading this book for the first time and reading the descriptions of the Daisy concerts and and mm-hmm. uh, ones that leaked, I think, <laughs> you know, two years ago or whatever. Just right. incredible. Yes. Right. And so, I guess what, what I'm wondering is, what now would you guys consider the Holy Grail or the Holy Grails? I'll bet. I'll bet if Kurt and I agree to go three, two, one, and say our answer at the same time, we end up with the exact same answer. You want to try it, Kurt? I seriously doubt we would, but yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. We got to think. We got to think the the holy grail of audio missing audio video. Okay. Ready? And I'll, we'll do it on one, three, two. Barry Richards Rock and Soul Show. Oh, okay. I was gonna say Superdome because I forgot about Barry Richards, but you're right. Yeah, I'd much rather see Barry Richards. Yeah, I can fill you in on this. Uh, in March of 1974, Kiss played the Bayou in Washington D.C. And this is. A week March, into the first tour. March 25th. Okay. The next day, and nobody had ever talked about this, nobody had mentioned this, and a week before we went to press, we got a hold of an itinerary that included a, a, a notice for WDCA TV Studios mm-hmm. uh, in Chevy Chase, Maryland. And we're like, what the hell is this? And we asked some of the roadies about it. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that happened. And as it turned out, Kiss had made an appearance on a local Washington, D.C. show called yes. um, Barry Richards Rock and Soul, I believe. Wow. Yes. And um, they performed Firehouse that we know of, possibly more songs. And the tape uh, was thrown into the garbage <sighs> at some point. Barry Richards in June of 74 quit WDCA had a hatchback and took every tape he could get his hands on and and took them with him where they remained in his garage for the next several decades. We had hoped beyond hope that one of the tapes was Kiss, but unfortunately that was not the case. So in 1987, they had a big clearing out of tapes and threw out the Kiss Master in 1987. Uh. So unless somebody living in D.C. had a VCR or even I would settle for an audio recording and happen to record that show, which is, which is a possibility, that unfortunately is most likely gone forever. And what was the other one then? I'm sorry, the other, the other, the Superdome? Yeah, what is that? Well, in 1983, Kiss played the Superdome on Creatures. Oh, and the, oh, and the right. Superdome was one of the few venues that had in-house video. Oh, sure, and, sure. And the Kiss yeah. concert was projected on the screens. But now, hang on a second. Isn't there also, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, and I have to go back and, and reread it, but isn't there some audio of a Wicked Lester performance? There is, yeah. yeah. There In is. fact, Brooke Ostrander, who who passed away a couple of years ago, had this in his possession. I assume his family probably still does. And Ken Sharp has heard the entire thing. He sat in Brooke's uh, uh, Brooke's apartment there in, in um, upstate New York and listened to the entire the entire thing. And he's got the entire set list. I don't know what it is off the top of my head, but it's full of Wicked Lesser stuff, Go Now, like Jethro Tull. There's all sorts of weird, weird stuff. Like like Suter and Eskimo Son are on there. Yeah, it's it's a strange set. And 
I actually had the set before we went to press, but I didn't want to scoop Ken on it because that was his find, and I get too much respect for Ken to, to, to do that. But yes, there is a <coughs> – and I'm trying to remember, Kurt, what show – what show was that? Was that the South Fallsburg show? It, I'm pretty sure it was South Fallsburg, yeah. The, the Kiss played a show at a movie theater in South Fallsburg, New York. Uh, we have a picture of the venue in the book. and The, Ri- uh, the, Rival- the Rivoli Theater, it's called. Yes. Rivoli. And wow. th- there's pictures of it in history, too. And uh, that's the gig that I believe got recorded and yes. you know, yes. may or may not be lost to time. Yeah, well, that's one of the things that, that you just brought up that was a real accidental side effect of our research is that when Kiss Alive Forever came out, I know people had their jaws on the floor going, where the hell did you get a Daisy tape? Where the hell did you get opening night of the Hotter Than Hell tour? The amount of stuff that came, that fell out of the – I mean, th- those two things, the loft rehearsal, uh, Tulsa 75 um, – Oklahoma City 77, the second half of the Houston Destroyer concert. The uh, the earliest earliest known recording from the Creatures Tour, which had Keep Me Coming on it. Right. Uh, 8mm film of Paul performing in the Bandit makeup. All of this stuff fell into our laps because of Kiss Alive Forever. It's not like we were bootleggers or anything to that extent. We, We wanted it for the information. Right. right, and um, to the point. If you go back and read the the summary of the Daisy, which everybody has most of, by the way, the one, the, the version that's out there is not complete. But um, if you go back and read that little thing, we say Jeff Seuss was you know visiting some California collector. That is such one hundred percent bullshit. We had the tape. We just didn't want people calling my house every five minutes. Can I come listen to it? Can I? No. <laughs> and so we didn't. Yeah, we just didn't want to um, have my phone or Eddie Solon's phone or Kurt's phone ring off ring off the hook. So we we did a little bait and switch with uh, with that. But one thing that I, I will tell you guys just to we should write. A series of articles or another book about our adventures researching this work. Mm-hmm. Inside of a gosh, thirty-six hour period, Kurt and I went to Palisades, New York, to research that Sneedon's Landing Palisades Free Library gig. Mm-hmm. And it's from May of seventy-three, right? May twenty, May twenty-sixth, nineteen seventy-three. So we nobody knew anything about that. So and we just did, posted an article about this. So I'll, I'll just hit the high points, but. We went there and we researched the gig, found out everything about the venue and talked to people that were at the gig, talked to people who actually booked the gig, talked to Ron Johnson, who's instrumental in it, talked to the members of the opening bands. And then we went to the library and Kurt and I, for $20, each got a square handbill, little concert poster from that night. The only two known to exist. The the next day, we went to South Fallsburg, New York, got to tour the place where Wicked Lester played their very first show. And then that night, we discovered the Daisy Tapes, the Loft Rehearsal, acquired something like, I don't know, 15 to 20 actual legitimate Coventry posters, a handbill mm. from the, the Daisy, the band's original, you know, fire truck light 
from 1973. All of this was within 24 to 36 hours. And I I still think back on that night and that, that day is like, Nobody is ever going to have that fall into their lap, anything like that ever again. It was Be- just yeah, best Christmas ever. <laughs> it, it was. We we wound up buying a collection that ended in January '74, and the whole collection was 1973. That's, that, and that's, I'm, that's not true because Kurt, there was a little that that thing that Gary just read. The the uh, Queen that's Elizabeth. right. There there were a couple of postcards from later on, but from, essentially from the, the yeah. collection ended in January 1974, and there there were I remember there were 23 Coventry posters in this collection. We were I was passing them out as party favors. Yes, um, you know uh, it was easily the best Kiss find in the history of Kiss collecting. I mean costume pieces, negatives, slides. Anything you could imagine, just about set list, anything you could imagine was in the guitar picks, drumsticks from 73. Everything was still in this box like it had been uh, sealed up on uh, January 26, 1974, which was the last time uh, wow. this roadie worked. And, uh, yeah, it was yeah, and, and, and easily Kurt, the most Kurt is, sitting, Kurt is sitting there going through all of this stuff, and myself and Mike Wren are standing in this guy's basement over to the side – Literally, you know, just trying not to cry, biting our tongues, just trying to, you know, putting a Herculean effort into keeping a poker face and and just kind of whispering, oh, my God, is that a Coventry poster? (laughs) Shut up. Shut up, dude. You're smiling. Stop it. Yeah, Yeah, it was was like Pulp Fiction when they opened the briefcase and the gold reflection. Exactly. You know, it's got to play it cool. You know, yeah, no, uh, yeah, it was it was unreal. We we didn't, and and at, at the point, we didn't even know what was. Uh, all we saw were you know reel to reel tapes. We're like, right. yeah, what the hell is that? Mm-hmm. We didn't even know, and it was it was they were four tracks, and so we had to have somebody professionally you know bake them and clean them up, and then mix them down and send them to us. And we're listening to this, going, what is this? And to this day. You know, Paul says on the Daisy tapes, that, or Peter says that they're out, you know, visiting their friends at the Daisy. Say, okay, it's a Daisy show, and then Paul makes that weird comment about unwed Father's Day, and so mm-hmm. that's it's just a guess that since Father's Day is, is the day after one of the Daisy shows, that that's when that's from. Nobody knows for sure, and um, the rehearsal tape we initially thought was from Latang's until. Larry Harris pointed out to us that they only rented out Latangs for a night. They didn't do it uh, rehearsed there. And so um, Paul Stanley had asked me, well, can you give me a, you know, give me a copy of that? Um, and so I send him a, a few clips of it, and he goes, that, that's us rehearsing at the loft. Um, mm. So, and, and again, on there, you hear Peter Chris say, hey, Richie, will get it together for you. And we just assume it's Richie Wise. So we estimate you know, knowing what we know about when Bill Coin first met them and some of the things they say in that rehearsal, that that's probably about August 20th, 73, but nobody knows exactly. So there, there's all this stuff that literally fell into our laps that, and we didn't even know what the heck we'd, we'd found. It was just... Hey, 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 hey I, sorry, really quickly, you know, I, I, I keep, yeah. I keep, you see, this is the problem, I talk to you guys and I keep having more questions. Who, who the hell is talking on stage in uh, Memphis, yeah, is that Jr.? No, it's Sean Delaney. Who's uh, who, who has like a real like uh, you know like like 
uh, southern voice. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like kids, you know, kids never fit down south, man, and they're really tight. It's, you know, they're having a tight time. That's, that's, that's Sean, Sean Delaney trying to sound like he's from the south oh, <laughs> and failing. Yeah. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> yeah. Got some lights up there. Yo, on this other side. You, lights. I want to be seen. That's it. Now open it. Right here. That's it. Hi. Is there anybody out there? Right. We're at Lafayette's, and we want to ask, do you want to rock tonight? Do you want to rock? Does anybody want to roll? Then live on 100 FM, put your two lips together, and welcome Kiss. Uh, hi, this is Olivia Chris, and you're listening to the podcast. Uh, this is our first time down the south for KISS and like uh, KISS said that it was definitely clean it was it was hot so far we've been down here two days now and we hope to be back right we didn't think there was anybody down here that liked to rock you know and roll get it right on up
last one, I promise. Who, no, you're fine. No, right, it's so great. Like, you know, Detroit, Michigan, right? So the Michigan Palace, the first time they play there, right? So you get someone, this is the, uh, you know, please welcome warmly a most unusual band. But then it sounds like he comes back later in the gig and, and, and is... Uh, that's the, I, I think that's the WABX DJ that was good friends with Larry Harris who'd kind of gotten them, gotten them that gig. Because that was in that, that stretch of gigs where Larry Harris was having to call in all his radio station favors at Casey and WABX and the place in, in Cleveland at the Agora that just came out not too long ago. And right. Kurt, Kurt, what's that guy's name? Um, the, oh. the, DJ from, the DJ from WABX. I know exactly um, who you're talking about, but I cannot remember his name. If, if you guys have the, the Casablanca book handy, it's in one of the photos. Larry's standing there with um, the DJ from WABX, and it's him that is on the tape. The Welcome Warmly, a most unusual band. Yeah. 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 Well, and then and then at the beginning of, like, Winterland 75, I for the longest time, I, I think, I'm not even sure, it looks a little bit like Mike McGurl, although... Mike says he never entered the band. It, I, I don't know if that's uh, you know like a a Winterland Bill Graham employee that introduces right. them. Right. And then there's like at the Bayou at the beginning of the Bayou here. Ah, and for the second time tonight, Casablanca recording artist Kiss. Right. Which is yeah, somebody. These, I love somebody that from stuff. yeah somebody from Cellar Door Promotions there at the Bayou introed. Uh, yeah, but I mean that there's just such great. Such great stuff that ended up coming out from, you know, a lot of us from the road crew. And then there were a lot of people, you know, I was on online just constantly networking people. Hey, do you go to Kiss Show? Tell me about it. Mm -hmm. And at least half a dozen times people would say, hey, I went to the show and recorded it. And I'd be like, can I, could you get me the set list? And they'd say, well, I'll send you the recording. And I was like, okay. And sure. so, <laughs> yeah, so there, there's a couple of Dynasty shows I got, which... And, and I'm not, I've never really been uh, paid that much attention to the bootleg world. I honestly don't know if some of this stuff is out there yet. But right. there was like a Portland, Maine dynasty show. There was a early, oh, that was a, a big scoop that we got was we found the very first Hard Luck Woman live recording that was, uh, that anybody had heard from, from New, New Orleans. Orleans. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that circulates, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it does. It, it does. Now. It does. Yeah. And there's there's another one that either predates it or is like the next the night after it that's out there as well. Now uh, you just have to find that elusive uh, night where they perform tomorrow and tonight live, and we'll be all set. <laughs> well, they, I right. tell you, they they did got love for sale, but they did not do tomorrow and tonight. Right. <laughs> right. Well, um, we we'd, we'd really love to get the um, the the night that they did um um you know Sweet Pain. Oh, that, yeah, that wow. that was stunning because that we got to meet Mark Rabbits and he and his wife invited uh, Kurt and I up to their their beautiful Brooklyn uh, walk-in and uh, they had the, the, the Destroyer mock-up sitting out for us and we took a photo of it. He had all the schematics of the stage and talked talk to us about the, the stage, which the crew hated. But yeah. we didn't tell him that. Um, and then he had because obviously he was heavily involved in production, he had the rehearsal and first night setlet sheet and we're reading this going wait what ace's solo is in sweet pain if that isn't ironic right right and right yet yet gene's bass solo is like the fourth song you know like no way and you know we don't 
Yeah, we don't have a, a tape of it, but it was still. But, but, you know, I, I, should, I should point out, guys, that that Kiss does have that tape in their archives. So if indeed Sweet Pain was played, it would have been done at the rehearsal that they did for the press in Newburgh, and that whole show does exist in the band's archives. Wow! Damn it, though, you know, really yeah. want to hear, that, right? Well, that's yeah, the fun. That, of it. If we had all of it, then it wouldn't, you know, in some ways it wouldn't be exactly. Funny. But I mean, look! Look at all the stuff that's come out, you know, in, oh. in the last ten years. You know, Absolutely. I mean, there's Hell, just the last some... two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Yeah. 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 Those uh, Eddie Kramer tapes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, stuff like that is always is always re resurfacing, and yeah, you you never know when when somebody's gonna go. Oh, hey, look! My uncle had the Barry Richards show in his basement. You know. My mom, she's like, what, 80 years old? She received an 8-millimeter tape from one of her bridesmaids that had been sitting in this this woman's basement for 56 years, and I took it over to somebody and cracked it open, and it's, you know, eight minutes of my parents getting married from 56 years ago. Oh, my God. I know. It was great. It's like, look at that. This is awesome. And, you know, so you never, ever know when somebody's sitting on – something you know all of this stuff that's been been great you know this jersey show that just surfaced the roxy theater dress to kill rehearsal shows that that surfaced it's all i'll tell you guys the the biggest heartbreak of the entire kiss life forever research was i was i was up in chicago i actually lived in chicago at the time and i had just gotten to know hot sam jay barth who is their front of house sound engineer from 74 through 76 Mm -hmm. And so I asked him the money question. He's like, Jay, do you have soundboards? And his response was, I've got a box full of soundboards. And my, my head just melts. Yeah, sure. And I, I, I'm literally like, this is like a Friday. And the next morning, you know, I had called and left a message. Dude, I'm driving over to Ann Arbor. I'll see you around lunchtime. <laughs> <laughs> I just literally got in a car and drove four hours. And unfortunately, he couldn't find it, and he's never been able to find it. He, he did find the soundboard of Anaheim, which at the time we didn't have. We had we had the, the video. We just didn't have soundboard quality. And that had some other 76 clip of like 100,000 years in cold gin on it, which to this day we don't know where it's from. But, but yeah, so at one point there was a whole box full of 74, 75 Kiss soundboards that went bye-bye. Wow. Uh, Heartbreak. Yeah. Oh. Isn't that unreal? Uh, that's, yeah, it's painful. That's painful. It is. And I'll tell you something else. Uh, April 75 and May 75 was a time when Kiss knew they were going to be recording for Alive, and so they really began to start experimenting with the set list and putting things in there that weren't normally in there, maybe for one night, maybe for two nights, and then dropping it. Jeff found a guy uh, when we were doing research for Kiss Life Forever that had recorded which, – which show was it, Jeff? It was an April 75 show at one of the high schools, I think. Oh, the, the, I found a guy that had friends or part of friend high no, school. No, no, no. We found that. But uh, um, there was a guy that had a show that uh, – it, it was an important show that we needed a set list for. And he had recorded over the show by asking. Is this the rock bottom? No. no. That's for May. This was an April 75 show from mm, – uh, I can't – Rockford maybe? I can't remember where it was. Somewhere in the Midwest. But yeah, so he had the show and recorded over the show, uh, and you know, lost forever, unfortunately. Brutal. Well, guys, I, we've got to wrap up. But if this interview proves anything, it's that uh, 
I could talk to you guys for hours, man. This is a fantastic. I mean, just such a like it's such a, a treat to talk to you and to and to get to thank you for a book that has brought so much joy to so many people. And so on behalf of the entire Kiss Army and everyone who's listening to the podcast, myself and Ken, what a joy. Thank you very much for the book. Everyone go buy it digitally, even yeah, if you have we, already. <laughs> and we should explain it's available exclusively through iTunes if you're on a PC or Android or the iBookstore if you are on Mac or iOS. And it, you can go exclusively through Apple right now. But you can get it, it will, no matter what format you're on. And, and it will be out in Kindle soon, within you know the next two months. For, for sure it will be out on Kindle if you're a Kindle user, so don't fret. And thank you very much, Gary, for all your kind words. And Kurt and I, you know, we're happy to come on and, and talk about this for hours on end. Uh, anytime you guys want. Awesome. Yeah, and we should also mention Kiss Alive Forever, the book, the Facebook page. Jeff and I are writing behind-the-scenes stories all the time. We just did a big piece on Magic Mountain. We did a big piece on Palisade 73. If you were into Kiss Alive Forever, any kind of uh, 70s Kiss writings or any of that kind of stuff, or if you're interested in the research that went on, Kiss Alive Forever, the book, come like our page, please. Excellent. Well, thanks again, guys, and we'll talk to you soon. Well, thank you much, guys. Thank you, guys. I right, appreciate it. Thank All right, you. Thank you, Ken. Really All appreciate right. it. We'll be really do. You. All right. All right. Bye-bye. And that is our show. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to check us out on the web at www.podcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook and on iTunes. If you'd like to contact the podcast, please drop us a line at podcast at gmail.com. Big thanks to Julian and everyone at KissFAQ.com. They've got great information there and a terrific message board, too. Thanks also to Keith LaRue and everyone else at Kiss Online for their great work representing the hottest band in the land. And as always, a big thanks to Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, Ace Fraley, Peter Chris, Vinny Vincent, Bruce Kulick, Eric Singer, Tommy Thayer, and the memory of the late, great Eric Carr, and the late, great Mark St. John. You are Kiss. And we are your army. Podcast is created by the Kiss Army for the Kiss Army, and it is available for free as an internet download. If you like what you hear on our show, go buy it and support the people who made it. Podcast is not affiliated with Kiss or any of its members, past or present. On behalf of myself, Ken, and the whole rest of the Podcast crew, thank you for listening to Podcast, the Kiss fanzine for your ears. We're great at that. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's we are amateurs. Yeah, I make all the sex sounds with my mouth afterwards. <laughs> Squish. Ooh. This place oh. is nice, right? I'm glad you wore your nice flip flops. <sighs> Stay frosty, man. Okay.